we we know ourselves because we know our history. You know, so too the body of Jesus has had a history throughout the years. The false view of church history today on In the Shadow of the Cross. everybody to another episode of In the Shadow of the Cross. I am Lauren Rosser and I'm here once again with my friends Jim Durkin. Good morning. And Arnold Schwarzenegger. I told you a lot of good vibes. <laughs> Michael Harden's chosen name for the week. We all, It's become a thing now where we, we look forward to see what name is he going to be this week. So uh, th- this week it's Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, so before we turn on the mics, we're having a discussion about what we want to do the podcast on. And we wanted to talk about the false view of church history. Because let me just, I could in a nutshell summarize the the view of church history that I grew up with until probably maybe 10 years ago that started to all unwind. Um, the, the view of church history I had was you had the book of Acts and everything happened exactly like it is in the book of Acts. And then after the book of Acts, Things kind of started going bad and then worse. And then by the time Constantine comes, the church was just doomed. It was in the dark ages. Really nothing good happened in that time period. Um, there was it, it was just uh, uh, strongly Catholic, which, you know, I grew up in a Protestant tradition, so that was bad. And there were a few good people who popped up here and there, but otherwise it was just all bad. And then... Thank goodness Martin Luther came along and he's the hero of the story. And he came along and he nailed his thesis to the chapel door. And then the church started the Reformation and everything started becoming wonderful. And then uh, for the last uh, couple hundred years, we had Protestant revivals and we had uh, Azusa Street and we had the Jesus People Movement. So for the last 500 years, everything was great. So basically, we had everything great in the book of Acts, Uh, things kind of going downhill, then Constantine, everything's bad, and then 500 years, everything is is great. So there's the church history that I received in a nutshell. So... Who who should who should we go to first? Go to Jim. <laughs> Jim shaking his head, pointing at Michael. <laughs> and let's go to Lauren. <laughs> go go to Lauren. I just shared my view of church history. Well, let's just. I'll ask Jim this. Jim, what was the view of church history you were given? Well, it, it was uh, similar, uh, although because I uh, was raised in a Pentecostal home. Uh, even Martin Luther got it wrong. Uh, so that kind of started things uh, off. Uh, and, you know, at least it started things off by people who wanted to come out of, uh, you know, those dark ages, like you said, from the apostolic. Uh, because the early church fathers uh, took it off the rails. Uh, you know, they they departed from the faith, you know, and Martin Luther, you know, kind of, kind of, kind of, um, 
and uh, but then Calvin came along and and he really messed things up. Uh, it would Martin Luther wouldn't have been too bad. He would have been tolerable, uh, but then Calvin kind of blew things up again. Uh, but thank God for Pentecost, you know, <laughs> that's when we really got on the right track, you know, because you've got Acts 2 and then you've got 1906, <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, 1906, what what happened in 1906? Uh, or, or, what, that's what I thought. Yeah, okay, because yeah, I said Azusa yeah. Street earlier. I, I, I wasn't yeah, sure the Azusa exact Street, year. Yeah. Because I know, like in the early twenties, there was like uh, what's her name, Amy Simple, Simple McPherson, McPherson. And, yeah. and yeah, yeah, things like that. So I, that's why I was wanting to clarify what nineteen oh six was. So, uh, so Arnie, <laughs> what do you want? What's the uh, what's wrong here? What's wrong with this picture? Well, for, first, I, I want to say that. Um, I was given when I, I was raised Roman Catholic, and so so we didn't we weren't taught church history. But what I did have was this book of the saints, and I loved that book. And it was a saint a day, and it told their story. And it was, I guess it it must have been written for for adults. I don't. I mean, it wasn't. I was reading you know sixth grade material and first grade and college material in sixth grade. So when I was younger. Six, seven, eight. You know, I could read that kind of stuff. And I used to love every day reading about a saint. And so, you know, it would be weird. Like the years would pop up three eighty four or eleven forty two. You know, I mean, you'd have these years pop up and um and different stories. So I knew I at least had a sense that there was this long history. Do you know what I mean? Then I became a conservative Baptist, and I was given the meta narrative you were given, right? Acts, Luther, today, Billy Graham. Right. Um, I was spared the Pentecostal narrative. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> Heretic. Yeah, right. Um, but but um, what really what really astounds me um, is that clergy who ought to know better, especially if they have been to an accredited school, are unfamiliar with the history of the Christian church or the development of doctrine. And this is, this is where, um, for me, we have to separate out two disciplines. We have to separate out doctrinal history, which is the history of ideas, from church history, which includes doctrinal history, but all includes politics and economics and uh, missionary movements and various figures and all of that. Um, one of the reasons I brought this up, Lauren, was I was just kind of mulling in my head last night uh, about the Middle Ages. I love the Middle Ages. And um, I'll show you guys, but uh, that, that whole bookshelf's mostly Middle Ages. Wow. Yeah. So um, for, for our viewers out there, it's one of those tall bookshelves, not one of them little short ones, one of them <laughs> tall, wide ones, and it's all packed with books. So I love the Middle Ages, and um, I often find more parallels to today in the Middle Ages than I do any other time in church history. Um, but I, I got to thinking there, there was really only one period I can think of 
in the history of the church where there would have been a time we might use the phrase dark ages. And that's after the collapse of Rome in 527, 529, 527, I forget, um, under Justinian. And, and then Europe, even though it's been Christianized, it becomes tribalized. And it's not until 800 when Charlemagne comes along and unites and create, recreates the Holy Roman Empire. So there's a couple hundred years there. Even when you go into doctrinal history, it's like there's this blank, right? This blank. There's a couple yeah. of monks and you know that did a few things on with Augustine's doctrine of election, but that's just so few and far between. And um, so I had a number of thoughts. One, how is it that when we teach early church history, we have the gall to somehow stop at the end of the first century and start saying everything's corrupt. That goes back to our theory of scripture. All the apostles wrote the biblical text. They all died by 100. That was the end of the apostolic area. When you move into the sub-apostolic area, everything starts getting screwed up because they did not have direct revelation from God that they were writing down. Right. Right. Whereas if, if you're like me, I mean, I date Second Peter, the pastoral epistles, and the book of Acts together, all at the same time battling the same thing around 119 to 122. You know? Okay. So I, I, Ignatius is before that, right? Right? Papias yeah. is before that. You know, so they get it. They get included in my, and the Didache is certainly before that. That stuff gets included in my framework when I'm doing church history. And once you include that kind of stuff, you're 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 going to include everything else. Well, here's the sad thing: you can go to seminary, a good seminary, and you can graduate with a master's of divinity, having only taken two semesters of church history. The first semester goes early church up to the Reformation, second Reformation to the present. And that's kind of a, a sad state of affairs because, yeah, you, you, you get the names, you get the dates, uh, but you, you don't get involved in the substantive types of discussion that are really important as to why these figures are even mentioned here in the first place. And the implications, the implications of one person's thinking on something can send shockwaves down 1,600 years. So when you, look wow. at, when you look at Augustine, right? When Augustine comes in with his Manichaean dualism, with his uh, trying to protect the grace of God, and he comes up with double predestination. And that becomes the standard then, you know, for uh, doctrine, not, not Catholic dogma, not, never Catholic dogma, but Catholic doctrine. And then it eventually becomes the standard for Calvinist doctrine, which is Calvinist dogma, you know. And we've seen how that line of thinking actually affects people's lives. It kills them. It literally drives them batshit nuts. I mean, I didn't mean that, but it, it, <laughs> okay. it no, it's, I've seen the psychological crippling effects of that doctrine in people's lives. Yeah. You know? Yeah, me too. One person, one idea, right? So when you start going back through church history, if you don't, if you don't know where 
you've been, you can't know where you are. Right? Yeah. I really, it's a, been a burden on my heart when I teach my students, and you know this, um, um, that I, I try to involve them in as much of the history of the Christian tradition as I can. You know, referencing movements and and helping them see that there there was really no dark period except for that little block of time where we don't have a lot of literature, but that doesn't mean it was dark. You know, that was right. You know, it might have been like a dark night of the soul for the church, so to speak, for that two hundred fifty years or so. But um, it's uh, it is rather remarkable to me that that we know so little about, uh, say, Martin Luther, that, uh, or, or, or if you're a Lutheran, you know so little about Calvin or the Anabaptists. And I, I think there's so much excellence out there in, in the Christian tradition, so much excellence. If you go looking for it, you'll find it. If you're looking for the flaws, you'll find those. But if you go looking for things that are powerful, things that are inspiring, things that, that help you shift your paradigm and th- things that the Spirit uses, I mean... It's amazing. It's amazing. You know, nobody, nobody's completely right. Nobody's really completely wrong, except for John Piper. Um, <laughs> I think it's just important to read, 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 read the great writers and thinkers and the mystics of, of the history of Christendom. I don't think you can do yourself any better favor than that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because, um, I've discovered like so many, so many Christians today, they don't even realize that most of their beliefs come from, or a lot of their beliefs come from Augustine. And, and so you, if you say, you know, well, your beliefs are Augustinian, they have no idea what you're talking about oh. because their history doesn't even start till Martin Luther, oh, yeah. you know? So they don't, they don't realize, just like you said, that one thing that's passed down 1600 years, you know, yeah. um, they don't realize that their beliefs come from way back, you know? Um, and, and that it's the beliefs that were shaped by one person in particular, yet they think this is Bible and this is the way it's always been because they don't know their church history. No. Where if you go to the churches in the East, they're not Augustinian. Right. So they don't have that baggage. So it's it's just, it's pretty interesting. Um, there was another thing you had said that I wanted to highlight. It was uh, on the lines of uh, about the good things in church history. Oh, yeah. It's funny how people will discover something, you know. Um, they'll, they'll come to some kind of new revelation or something. They'll think it's new. You know, oh, they'll get really excited about, you know, this thing they're they're seeing now. And they don't realize, well, this guy back there, you know, about 400 years ago taught that. This isn't new, you know, mm-hmm. or this person back in the early, early church, you know, in the 200, 300s taught that, you know. So it, it, it pays to know our history so that um, it, just like the whole, I mean, I'm going to open a can of worms here, but I, I, I'm not wanting to go down this path here. But like most Christians, they think this thing like there's there's a big rise um, against the uh, not believing in hell anymore. And and so many Christians think this is new and 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 they don't understand. No, this actually in the first 300 years of the church, th- there was three views on hell annihilation, ultimate reconciliation, and eternal conscious torment. Guess what person in the past held eternal conscious torment? Augustine. And that's why most people in the West are Augustinian, but he blocked out the other two views. So the funny thing is people who hold to, you can hold to any three of those views who have that perspective are actually not liberal. 
they're super conservative because yeah. <laughs> they're going all the way back to the early church. And that's what I find funny is so many people who talk about those liberal Christians, those liberal Christians, those liberal Christians, they don't understand. They're actually the liberals on the block because they've only had their beliefs for up to 500 years, where some of the beliefs that they're combating that they think are new are actually thousands of years old. They just don't know their church history to know that that's just a reemergence of something that's that's been there from way back in history. So, so it's pretty fascinating. Um, Jim, what, what what have you seen as far as church history? Well, I, I was just sitting here thinking as as Mike was talking, and and you also that um, coming through uh, or or being raised in a Pentecostal stream. And and then in the late '60s, early '70s, moving to the charismatic, uh, you know, expression of the Pentecostal move, um, and and I can't say this authoritatively, but I question whether perhaps Presbyterian, Lutheran, Methodist, other major denominations do similar. Their understanding, or if they have any at all of church history is of their church's history. You know, right. you know uh, just w- what is the Presbyterian history, you know, if they have any at all. So being Pentecostal uh, through my youth, and, and I would still identify somewhat with that by expression, not by, uh, you know, lockstep, if you will, Um I think most uh, give very little credence to um, the long, the 2000 year church history or, or longer because the overarching um, belief is that we need to live by the spirit. And Lauren, just what you were saying uh, living by the spirit means that um, we get our we get our um, understanding of uh, what the spirit is saying to the church through inspiration, mostly the inspiration of the person up front, uh, but also our own, uh, you know. And so our history goes back as far as our inspiration goes. And, and, and so if a person, uh, I'm thinking of some friends of mine, and, and I spend a considerable amount of time on Facebook, and, and in, in this podcast I'll address some things that have come up on Facebook in this subject. But I have a very good friend of mine that um, he has uh, come to a certain persuasion about uh, the non-existence of hell. And so he's pretty bold on Facebook to put it out there that he's come to this. And he, every time he puts something on there, he gets attacked very quickly by other people. It's like, brother, uh, where are you getting this garbage from? And, And sometimes I'll use, you know, more aggressive language. And uh, it's like uh, the early church fathers, the apostles, Jesus, Paul, they all preached damnation and hell and the wrath of God and the, you know. And 
and he'll write back and he said, uh, no, they didn't. That's right. <laughs> Where are you getting from that? You need to read. And he says, and he comes on there and he says, I have read. How many books have you read? How many of the writings of the early church? And the argument that comes back is, ah, the early church fathers, they were all wrong. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know? Wow. And, and, and it's like, did you come to that conclusion because you've read them and you've studied and you've researched? Or did you come to that conclusion because you had an inspiration and your inspiration goes right along with what the guy up front is teaching. Right. And the truth of the matter is I have, I have to confess that until about, oh, I would say no more than two years ago, um, I went right along with everything, everything I've ever been taught. I went right along with it. And about two years ago, uh, I started, and I, it's going to sound like I'm going to contradict exactly what I just said, but I started having inspirations hmm. <laughs> that I believe were Holy Spirit-led, mm -hmm. that things are not as they seem, and maybe I should do some homework. And my homework, and I'm not just talking about the subject of hell, I'm talking about Almost everything I've believed, mm -hmm. and certainly in this category of church history, and um, I'll uh, I'll uh, put one more thing out there: um, the argument that gets used a lot in in these types of arguments on Facebook is you've strayed from the faith once delivered to the saints. I've seen that one. I've seen it. And I would have two years ago, three years ago, I would have been right on top of that one saying, yeah, we need to pray for this brother, you know? Hmm. And then I'm like, wait a minute. The, the faith once delivered to the saints, you mean... The faith once delivered to the saints that began in the early 1900s with Azusa Street? Or that one? Right. And the subsequent doctrines that were, you know, the, I don't know what they are, 18 or whatever there are, doctrines that you have to adhere to to be a Pentecostal pastor, license and pay your dues. You mean that faith? Uh, is that really the one that was once delivered to the saints? Or do we go back like Michael just talked about and read about the saints down through the history, down through the ages, and, and do some homework? And what is or what was, uh, well, I should say, what is the faith that was delivered? And who's the deliverer? Who's the one that delivered that faith? And and really research it. And so I'm I'm in some ways I'm the junior in this study. I've only been in it a couple of years, but um, it's blowing my mind what I'm discovering. And uh, it's 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 
it's funny if you've only eaten one cuisine all of your life and then all of a sudden you discover uh, there are other cuisines out there. It makes you hungry to want to try more. So. <laughs> right. I know exactly what you mean because I was walking home from work the other day. I've been listening to audiobooks when I walk to work. And, and I was listening to this one book and it, it was uh, un- unpacking the historical side of what Jesus was talking about as he was preaching the gospel. And I kept having to stop the tape just to revel in what was unfolded that I was never taught, you know, in my tradition. And, and so it's, you're right, Jim, there, there's, um, there's so much beauty out there. And I think, um, I think so much of it, I, I, there, there's probably numerous reasons, as, as many number of reasons as there are people for why people don't dig in. I think one reason though is fear, mm-hmm. because if I've held on to something my whole life, and then I start unraveling things that contradict that, that are from credible sources, that's going to put me in a crisis. Mm-hmm. So it's much easier to shut down the voices oh. that I don't agree with than to, Absolutely. you know, un- unpack that. So what, uh, something you just said, Lauren, that's another whole subject. Okay. There is this history of the church, but what you were saying Jesus unpacking the history of the, of, you know, of the Jewish people of, uh, you know, that's another whole study. And that study gives you a, a different perspective, if you will, certainly a deeper perspective and a deeper understanding of uh, the Jewish Bible, the, the Old Testament scriptures. As you begin to, you know, Jesus talking to Nicodemus and saying, you're a teacher. You should know these things. Right. And then talking to the two men on the road to Emmaus and taking those same scriptures and showing how they reveal him. And the truth of the matter is that there aren't a whole lot of people, you know, we're talking about... uh, People not understanding the church's history. There aren't a whole lot of people that understand the national history of Jerusalem and why they had a um, God perspective that was not revealed through Jesus Christ and how it took Jesus to reveal who God was. That's another whole study, but uh, uh, yeah, the importance of understanding our history where we came from. And and so just to wrap it up on my part, the Pentecostal idea that uh, we walk by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I still believe that. Mm -hmm. I I don't deny that. But I do believe that what you just said, number one, many of the inspirations are steeped in our history. And first of all, secondly, if we understood history, we would know which inspirations don't really come from the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Right, yeah. Some of them are not really inspired. No! (laughs) Right. No, it's true. No, that... that... Heresy. 
<laughs> that was really good, Jim. Um, so much that you shared there. And I, I love that you talked about, we're even bring, able to bring up some of those quotes that I've seen on Facebook as well about the saint, the, the, the faith delivered to the saints and things like that. Cause I've seen that one too. And it's rat. It's, it's, I've almost wanted to retype an angry response. I'm like, let it go, you know, scroll on, you know, but La- uh, last week's podcast, keep your mouth shut and your ears it, open. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep. And so Michael, I saw you taking a lot of notes uh, as Jim was talking. What, what are some of your thoughts? So yeah, what, what, what Jim was stimulating was, um, I kind of came up with a, a little short list of three things you want to avoid if you're a layperson and, or a pastor and you're doing church history. Scholars should know better. I don't need to tell scholars how to do their history. They've they've gone. They've read everything from Hegel to Dilty to Marx and uh, all the theory, historical theoreticians and philosophers in the 20th century that we've talked about before. So. Lay people, pastors, number one. When you choose to do church history, you need an excellent guide. That guide will not be found in your church library. It will not be found at your Bible bookstore. That type of guide will be found at a seminary bookstore. Or you can ask somebody uh, that is not uh, dogmatically inclined yeah I would call I would I would call a local seminary or a local religion department and I would say I'm just looking for the for, for a good introduction you'll find one I mean there's the Cambridge press has great introductions as does um, Oxford University press um, uh, you know that sort of thing okay it's number two Um be careful of the translation. Always be aware you're reading a translation. Always, always, always. And especially when it comes to the fact that most most of the uh, early church fathers uh, and some of the reformers and some folks from the time of the Puritans, all that stuff can be found online now. Okay. But almost all of its older translations, and a lot of it's based on questionable manuscripts. So just you got to be careful. You got to know that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So um, that brings me to the next point. There is a what I call false orthodoxy. So I'm going to I'm going to use for example the Orthodox Presbyterian Church of America. They are a false orthodoxy. Uh, really, what they are is they are um, heirs of the Beza Perkins tradition out of the out of the po- post after Calvin dies, Beza takes over in Geneva, uh, sets up election as the head of the system. That kind of doctrinal Calvinism ends up in England, and by 1647, you have Richard Perkins codifying this thing into uh, the system that will inform the Puritans as they're coming to America, and of course the Reformed tradition in Holland, etc. The Orthodox Presbyterians, they think, they actually think that this is the doctrine of Scripture, okay? And so they know they're Presbyterian, they know they're in that tradition, but they're Orthodox, and so they're rebelling against the liberal Presbyterians, right? They're Orthodox. And and the the reality of the matter is about 95% of what they consider to be Orthodox, by the rest of Christendom would not be considered Orthodox at all. First of all, okay, 
Now they could claim, well, we're this, we're this remnant. We're holding the truth when the rest of Christianity fails. And the problem with that is they are unable exegetically, apologetically, intellectually, or anything else. If you get, if, if they're, if you're smart enough, you're like, you're knowledgeable enough, you get into an argument with these people, you can decimate their logic and everything else. It's not, but you, you have to be smarter than they are because they read, they read, 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 read. They study, 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 but they only study within their box. They know everything about their little box. You know, it's not hard to go in and decimate them, but most people that try to, to argue with them can't. And so this group now gets to think that its beliefs about the virgin birth, the atonement, the resurrection, the holy scripture, the church, sin, this, that, and the other, they get to actually believe, they actually believe that they are articulating the faith once delivered to the saints. And it's the thing is, is that if they had a clue, they'd realize, wait a second, the New Testament writers are thinking, Jewish, Catholic Church is thinking Platonic, we're thinking Aristotelian, right? Their closest heir is Thomas Aquinas, (laughs) you know? Um, So there's that false approach. It's like the Baptists with their big church, their big map of church history and how you know, it, it ends up coming right straight through eventually down to the Baptists, right? And it's absurd. Right. It's just, that's false orthodoxy, and I call people on it all the time. I just, if, the, if you want me to believe in that kind of a God, if that's the God that the church has always believed in, I wouldn't take a leak on that God. Wouldn't be bothered. You know, but that's not the God that the church has believed in. Even through, though Augustine has had his influence, the Catholic Church never turned that into dogma. You know, they were smart. Catholic Church was smart. There are very few dogmas in Catholicism, considering it's 2,000 years old. There are very few dogmas. A lot of doctrine, a lot of doctrinal disagreements and even controversies. Whereas the Protestants, the, in, in this case, the Orthodox Presbyterians, they've come along and dogmatized everything. There's, for them, doctrine is dogma. And if you disagree, you're disagreeing with God or the Bible, which God wrote. So that's, that's first. Next comes what I call anachronism. We're going to go back and we're going to read Calvin and Luther. We're going to realize they're very patriarchal. Luther's very racist. Uh, they're both um, dealing with significant personal issues and resentments. Um, and when we go back and we criticize them, we're reading them as though they should be thinking the way we're thinking. And that's not fair to them. And we have to remember whenever we are reading someone, they are a person of their time. They can only know what they can only know. I can't expect Luther to be René Girard or Calvin to be Martin Heidegger or or whatever, or Karl Barth. They only knew what they knew at the time, right? And so we need to read these figures in church history with a tremendous amount of grace and humility, okay? The same way we would want people to read us down the road. 
And yes, you're going to find stuff in everybody you read where their life doesn't live up to their words and this and that and the other. Well, hallelujah, it's sinners that happen to write great inspirational texts, right? Not perfectionists, you know, sinners. And we need to keep that in mind so we're not reading anachronistically. And the second part of that is we don't want to read our modern ideas back into these writers. We need to let them speak in their own terms, even if we don't like it. It's like I tell people, you may not like what the Bible says, but when you go to translate it, you are not free at all to turn it into what you want. You can't do that. Yeah. You know, like we, anyway, I won't mention names. Third, here's another thing. Be careful of the type of church history you're reading because you're going to be reading revisionist church history, whether it's from the fundamentalist tradition or the more, say, um, university-oriented slash liberal tradition, which is going to read the history of the church through a very uh, Hegelian Marxist lens. And what that means is those books are always going back and, yeah, they'll do a little doctrinal history, but they'll just be banging the church on the head for its patriarchy and the church wouldn't let women do this and they wouldn't let And you know what I mean? It's just, it's, <laughs> again, that's an anachronistic. If it wasn't for the church, if it wasn't for the church cradling the gospel, being the womb of the gospel, we never would have had modern science. We never would have had the feminist movement. We never would have had racial equality become something that comes to our, the front of our brain. It was the church that cradled the gospel and the spirit kept preaching for and does preach today. Jim is right about this. The spirit does great work. And so I would just say to anybody that wants to read, you want to go read Athanasius? Great. Okay. Don't go reading Athanasius without learning about his life, without learning about 4th century Alexandria, without learning about his background, without, I mean, and if you're going to read like uh, on the incarnation of the word and you're going, I'm reading this great theological grace writing that someone like Baxter Kruger recommended at all. I'm reading Athanasius. I get people all the time on Facebook, I'm reading Athanasius and I'm going good. You have any idea what you're reading? You understand? You know the background? You know the context? You know the Arian controversy? Have you read Arius? Do you understand what's happening here? Or are you just are you just reading an orthodox document that makes you feel good? You know what I'm saying? Right. So, um, so those are those are the three things I wanted to or a number of things I wanted to, to say. And I just I would encourage everybody to to dip into different periods of the history of the church and and uh, it's amazing, it's stunning, you know. Uh, particularly as you see the Renaissance develop into the Reformation and all the changes that take place, you know, then through the 18th and 19th centuries where cities uh, learn sanitation, like London. We start learning to clean up our act, you know. I mean, that's, that's the impact of the gospel. All of that's the impact of the gospel. I bash modern Christianity I mean, I, that's my calling. I'm a prophet. I can't handle it. I, do, I can't deal with it. I do deal with it, but um, that's my calling. But I don't bash the church or church history. Modern Christendom, yes. Modern American Protestant Christendom, especially. Uh, 
but not the church. The church is the fourth article of the creed, man. There is no doctrine of the Trinity without the church. And there's no church without the doctrine of the Trinity. I mean, you, you know, it's the local congregations and their silliness that I want no part of. Right. Now, I'm glad you mentioned um, books, um, how to how to go about getting books, because one of the things I've written down on my notes is, do you know, like for for the average person out there who, like me, um, is not like an in-depth scholar who really just wants something that's like a, um, just kind of gives a, a, a good overview of church history, like a textbook kind of view of church history? Is there something that you could recommend well, for example, and I, the, some of these books are a little older because, you know, I've had them in my library for 20, 30, 40 years, but um, there, there, there might be newer ones that try to replicate. I don't know. Uh, there's a, a book called Historical Theology by Jeffrey Bromley, G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y, Jeffrey Bromley, taught at Fuller Seminary. Um, and uh, there would be, for example, I'm... I'm in the bookshelf here about two feet from me if I was to go through the beads here. I mean, I would recommend Yaroslav Pelikan's five-volume series um, on... Say, say the name one more time. Yaroslav, J-A-R-O-S-L-A-V, Pelikan, P-E-L-I-K-A-N. He has a five-volume series... Uh, he does the early church in, in one volume. He does um, Orthodox, early emerging Orthodox Christianity in the yellow volume. In the blue, purple volume, he deals with the Middle Ages. Uh, I forget what color the Reformation is. I think it's green. I'm not sure. The Reformation through the about the 15, 16th, 17th centuries. And then the last volume is, is doctrinal history up through the present. Um, you can find that on Amazon and you can probably get it reasonably cheap. Now it's, it's not that old, but it is a standard that will last for another 80 years, much like uh, von Harnack's history of dogma, which was produced at the end of the 19th century lasted really up until the 1980s or so when scholars began really revising a lot of, of, of church history. They were discovering uh, manuscripts. They were, uh, apply. They were applying tools. I have a beautiful book in my in my office in there. Can't think of the title. I'll go get it or something uh, and get get it to you. But this um, uh, scholar and I forget her name. I apologize. I'll get that to you too. She takes a, a very small set of texts from Akirinkus the papyri that were discovered, Akirinkus, very small texts. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, just like little letters, three of them. And she, with her tools, is able to open up these letters and you are in the midst of vivid daily life there. And these are Christian texts. And it's wow. stunning. I've never, uh, yeah, I have never seen such a beautiful application of the historical and uh, linguistic method as I have in that book. And I, I think it's speak to the Lord, speak for the Lord, something like that. I'll have to go get it. But it's beautiful. But you, there's beautiful books to read out there. I mean, you can you can read St. Francis. There are um, uh, volumes, volumes in the Library of Christian Classics that you can collect. There are uh, there's a whole series on spirituality. And, you know, I mean, I 
I don't know the name of the series, and it's too far away for me to to, to see. But I love that series, you know. Um, so the, the, there is wonderful literature out there. You just, you know, if you type in, uh, you go to Amazon. I mean, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm curious. I'm going to go type this into Amazon right now, and I'm going to type in uh, church history. Okay. That's all I'm going to type in. What comes up first? Okay, so I've got uh, a volume by somebody named Sinclair Ferguson, The Highlighted 20 Centuries. That's a sponsored ad. I don't want a sponsored ad. That's good. Um, something like I'm looking at a book here called Church History, Living in Christ, Apostolic Times to Today. I would probably stay away from that. Uh, Church History, Volume 1. Now, from Christ to the pre-Reformation, the rise and growth of the church and its cultural, intellectual, I, I don't even know who the, the Everett Ferguson, that to me looks like something I would want to, to read. Um, uh, let's see, there's uh, Church History, the Basics uh, by, uh, forward by Paul Meyer. I can't read the author's name. They don't have a Oh, it's a Concordia Publishing House book. I probably wouldn't buy that because that's Missouri Synod Lutheran. You know, um, uh, I would stay any, away from titles like God's Timeline, the big book of church history. You know, um, <laughs> church history in plain language. Good luck. <laughs> you know, um, uh, there is the book. There is the church history by um, Justo Gonzalez, which a lot of seminaries use. That's very, very good. Uh, the Older History of the Christian Church by Philip Schaff, the eight-volume set, um, has a lot of text in it, but a lot of a lot of it has though those views have been revised. Uh, in um, I've got one. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, yeah. There, there doesn't actually. As I'm going through Amazon here, I'm really quite disappointed, <laughs> uh, because there doesn't. They don't seem to really be picking up on books that are scholarly. They're picking up, I guess, on books that sell. Yeah, well, and that makes sense. That they those usually show up at the top, the ones yeah, that have the highest yeah. number of people buying them. Oh, Henry Chadwick here, the early church. Uh, Cambridge or Oxford scholar Henry Chadwick, you know that's a that's a great book on the early church. You know, but okay. So, so the point is, when you when you go to something like Amazon, you're looking for a book, you, you just can't buy a book, okay? And that's why I say, yeah. call somebody at a local college, call a professor at a seminary that does church history, and say, I really want a good introduction. Which book shall I shall I get to start laying a foundation? Right. Okay. Well, that's good because that, that's what I was looking for. Is where where could uh, what are some suggestions for people who are just looking to to have something that they could read that they is you know pretty reliable uh, yeah. that they could pick up. So that that sounds good. It's funny because we we're talking about the other statement we see on Facebook all the time of uh, of the faith delivered to the saints. Another one that came up that I've heard all the t often is I've never heard that before. Or how come I've never heard that before? Like you're teaching or sharing some weird, strange thing from outer space. And it's like, well, just because you haven't heard it before, 
doesn't mean it's something that's not dominant in Christian thought. It's just your little circle never teaches that or has never heard it before. And you, you, you think your circle has the corner market on truth. So that's all you read or hear is anything in your circle. And, and you don't realize how, how sheltered you are until you start looking outside your, your circle and, and your group. You don't, you don't realize how much group think really goes on inside your your group. Um, I, I love that uh, a friend of mine, there was a group of people uh, producing a documentary on the Reformation and they brought it to him to screen it. And now this friend of mine uh, is, a, is ordained in the Lutheran church, but he also has numerous friends who are Catholic priests and he even shares often in, in Catholic churches and in, in, in their seminaries and stuff and has been a real bridge builder between uh, Protestantism and Catholicism. And so when he looked at the documentary, he said he turned to the makers and he goes, uh, this documentary is way too Protestant. He goes, you're only telling one side of the story. He goes, you really need to talk to some Catholics and get, get the other side of the story. And, uh, and they listened to him oh, good. and they went and they actually included some, uh, uh, Catholic priests in the, uh, in, in the documentary. And they, and, uh, I, I believe if I remember right, I think it's called this changed everything. Um, but it, it's a, it's, it's a pretty balanced, um, view of the reformation that doesn't just go off on the Protestant side. So, um, I would recommend that if, if for people looking for something video oriented on, on church history on the Protestantism, cause it was good. I learned all this stuff I never knew before, you know, that was going on inside the Catholic church. Cause they were the villains, you know, and, and didn't, didn't realize all this stuff that, cause one of the priests says reformation would have happened even if Martin Luther didn't do it, he goes, it, there was already things going on in the Catholic church. Right. And, and I love that somebody else, I don't remember if this was in the documentary or something that when the Catholic priest just told my friend personally, he goes, he goes, the, the, um, the thing with, that happened with Martin Luther, he goes, that was a family squabble that we handled all wrong. That's correct. And uh, I thought that was, a, again, a side of the story that I'd never heard, you know? Mm -hmm. So it, it's just pretty interesting that, um, that uh, that you start to learn that there was Reformation happening in the Catholic Church, which we weren't. That's why the Catholic Church isn't the same Catholic Church that was back then. It's not the same today. But because Protestants departed from it, and that's they kind of took their last picture of it right there. This is them. It's plastered down for all time, and so they're still holding on to that image from you know the 1400s that this is Catholicism. It's like no, it's not. <laughs> so it's it's pretty interesting. I'd like to pick up on. I'd like to pick up on something uh, Michael said. It it kind of took me down a little bit, little bit different trail, but it, it's in some ways it's it's the same as what we're talking about, and that's to the people who say, "I don't need to all that church history stuff. All I need is the Bible." Okay, now I'm going to say this to you: if you want to just read the Bible, nothing else, then I would suggest that you do what Michael said about church history, that you research the story behind it. Who is the, who is the author? Who are they writing to? What is their understanding 
So much of New Testament was written from a Jewish perspective. Do we know that? Do we understand what that? It was not written from a 20th century perspective or, or even a 21st mm-hmm. century perspective. Um, you know, uh, Western uh, conservative American flag-waving perspective. That's not how they wrote it. And and if you want if if you want to take that narrow road as you think it is and be a Bible only person, then do your homework. Don't just cherry pick certain scriptures that prove, at least to you, what your pet doctrine is about certain things. It's like do your homework. Um, I'm, I'm not saying you should be a Bible-only person. Uh, I, I think you've narrowed your worldview t- way too much. Uh, that's why we're doing this podcast. Uh, but if you if you choose to do that, uh, blow yourself out of the narrow lane that you've been running on your favorite 15 scriptures that prove everything that you've ever been told to believe. Um, It it might help you. Exactly. (laughs) You know, it might help you. I I, I wish people understood that just, just as we personally are our histories, when we look, we, we know ourselves because we know our history you know, so too the body of Jesus has had a history throughout the years. And there is no doctrine believed by any Christian on the face of the planet that goes back to the Bible. None. The writers of the New Testament were preaching the gospel. They weren't formulating doctrine that the the one thinker that might be opening up theological paths for that is Paul but he is not formulating doctrine it's not it's not part of that worldview and again as i've observed the early church did not agree doctrinally on really very much at all what we would call doctrine Right. So we have to recognize that what we call doctrine, our ability to articulate uh, what we think are certain patterns in Scripture, all of these come from some thinker somewhere outside of the New Testament. Yeah. And um, a large part of that is because we, when the our church goes Gentile after the fall of Jerusalem and, and Judaism and Christianity begin to part their ways, we lose that ability to think like Jews. And so we, yeah. we have to have another thing. So what do we do? We substitute Plato for Hillel. Right. And from that point on, mm-hmm. now we can do doctrine. Okay, so Michael, I'm gonna I'm gonna okay. toss you one here, and this is this is where a lot of Protestants, uh, I think, hang their hat on. They continued steadfast in the apostles' doctrine. Oh, in the book of Acts, 
and I know that's a bad <laughs> translation, but still, yeah. sure. You know, you know what I'm saying. Okay, so doctrine is important mm -hmm. to to most people. How do you exegete that? That scripture. So the the term there is is, is didache. And the Didache refers to the ethical substructure like we find in the Sermon on the Mount. It does not have to do with, hey, let's talk atonement theory. Jesus just died. We're going to figure this out. That's no. It's It refers to them taking this lifestyle, this peace lifestyle on. And the fact is that experiment in Jerusalem Christianity it lasted less than 18 months, maybe a year tops, all right? It was a failure, and it was also exclusive because they were only catering to the uh, Aramaic-speaking widows, not to the Greek-speaking Christian ones, but just to the Aramaic ones. And so I don't look on that as something positive. Is the Dedicate available today? Can a person get a, a copy of that? of this so-called apostolic didache from the book of Acts, you mean? Yes. Well, okay, so first of all, uh, there is a document called the didache. It's a Jewish Christian document. In fact, it has the uh, earliest Eucharistic prayer that we possess. Um, the, the, there are, there's a distinction between kerygma, preaching the gospel, and didache, teaching the gospel. Um, but teaching in the early church, Didache, has to do with this lifestyle, not intellectualizing things, this lifestyle. If there's any intellectualizing that goes on, it's only going to go on in relation to Jesus and the Father and their relationship, like you sometimes find in the epistles to Ignatius. But other than that, no. And so that that there is no... There's the category that we know as Didache. There's the category we know as early Christian catechesis. There's the document we know as the Didache, whose structure we see replicated in Luke's Sermon on the Plain and Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. And, and, um, but, but, but again, these Didache's are going to be different depending upon the geography and the audience, Right. And so that's why Matthew's Didache, written to a Jewish audience, has all this halakha, mm -hmm. this Jewish art form of argumentation in Jesus and the law. Mm -hmm. Luke's doesn't. Luke's writing to a, a, a much more wealthy Gentile audience, and he's trying to show how, um, you know, the Didache, you be generous, be generous, right? So there's going to be different emphases, but they're all going to be pacifistic, every last one of them. That's good. That's that's the, that's that's true across the board. Orthodox heresy doesn't matter. That that commitment to pacifism, forgiveness, non-retaliation, non-violence, that is the core. That is the heart or, of the Didache, but it's also the heart of Christian theology. Wow, really good stuff. There, there's a lot more I'd I'd like to continue to talk about, um, but we are at time. Thanks for joining everybody. And uh, just to, to save uh, Jim and Michael from having to go through their same lines that we do every week at the end of the podcast. Available on Amazon.com. That's what I was going to say. Jim and Michael's materials can be found on Amazon and Michael's videos found on YouTube. And we'll... Uh, yes. And we'll talk to you all again next week.